Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media, and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a quick second to shout out our friends at QDB.com. That's C-U-E-D-B.com. QDB is a cloud-based software that allows you to make your own customizable cue lists for spotting, composition, orchestration, mixing, and cue sheet delivery. If you'd like to try it out, use the code COMPOSERTALK for 15% off for one year. Our next guest is a multi-platinum selling record producer, sound designer, composer, and DJ. He's composed music for video games including Dota 2 and Counter-Strike GO, and has sound design credits on films ranging from Captain Marvel, Deadpool 2, and Blade Runner 2049 to The Incredibles 2 and Motherless Brooklyn. He's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Tap Tempo. Most recently, he put out the Isolation LP, and I'm so excited to welcome him on the show. And the composer is Matt Lang. Hello. Good to see you, or hear you. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) How's it going over there? What's your life like? Life's pretty good, honestly. You know, I, um, I feel like at first, like, being completely remote was, I mean, obviously just so different. But in a weird way, it's also kind of relaxing and it feels like a creative time still yeah i mean it's funny my uh my day-to-day is not drastically different than it was a year ago (laughs) i mean aside i mean i'm not obviously traveling right now where i used to do a lot of that but when it comes down to the actual um the writing in the studio and just my my life of i mean i work out of my house where i have my studio so not a whole lot has really changed in that regard it's just i don't get to see people after work now which is obviously a an issue yeah, well, on that, so, I mean, Matt, you do so many things at, like, such a pro level. Like, I was curious, like, like how do you, like, introduce yourself to, like, someone at a party or something? Oh, man, it's a hard one. I, I, I usually just say I'm a musician. Mm, okay. Um, only because it's a lot going on. Sometimes I say I'm a composer. It depends on the crowd, I guess. Um, right. I never say I'm a DJ. Usually people say that for me, and I'm always thinking, oh, did you have to? <laughs> <laughs> And I know that's my own issue with that term, which is a personal problem. It's really not obviously a a bad thing. But um, yeah, I always just say I'm a musician because it's just easier. It's kind of hey, man, you're you're a really good guitar player. Thank you. I that's my favorite instrument, truly. Mm, I see. Yeah, it's. I was a metalhead growing up. I mean, I still am to this day. But um, like my earliest memories of basically like recorded pop music. It was Metallica and Megadeth, and then on the flip side, Busta Rhymes. So, wow. <laughs> oh, I grew up in New York, so that would be why. But yeah, so then once I picked up guitar, I mean, it was just, you know, I want really heavy distortion and, you know, palm mutes and pinch harmonics. And eventually we got into death metal and all the guttural screams and <laughs> the sound of pain. <laughs> I, mean, I kind of got that vibe from isolation as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... It's a dark record. It's a very, I mean, obviously, you know, thematically, it's going to be a dark record. But um, but the nice thing about doing this album was the freedom of it, where I didn't have to think about, I mean, it was truly a passion project. I, I did it really just to keep my sanity, and I wasn't thinking about anybody else or uh, how it's going to be received. It was just 
purely uh, a crime of passion, if you will. And I, I needed it for myself just to keep my sanity. But consequently, I was working through, you know, a fair amount of uh, emotional issues during, I mean, I still am, we're all dealing with this stuff in very different ways. And, you know, it's emotionally exhausting. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the record was kind of, it gave me direction and it gave me, you know, a sense of purpose when everything felt really quite just existentially meaningless. Yeah. So out of curiosity, like how did that come about? Like, were you intentionally just like making out, like, did you have an idea of an album immediately to start? Were you just making like tracks or even um, at the time, or I guess right before the pandemic, really a few months before that I was, I was doing a bunch of demoing for, uh, some TV shows and films and stuff like that. And so my headspace was already in this kind of scory, scory world. And I mean, I, because I do so many different, or I have so many different sides of myself, I kind of have to turn on which part of myself I'm working on at a moment. So if I was doing, you know, the DJ thing, like I was just be thinking only about club music. And then if I was doing the more rock stuff, then I'm, I'm in rock mode. If I'm in composer world, then I'm thinking, you know, more scory. So I was kind of already in the scory headspace. And scory is a funny word, but I'm going to keep going with it. For sure. um, <laughs> but I was kind of in that headspace already. And as the pandemic hit, you know, it was one of those moments of like, what am I going to do with myself? I had literally, I had been on the road for, I was on tour for basically every weekend for the, I want to say seven weeks up until when the pandemic finally shut everything down. So I was kind of like seeing this every weekend in the airports, just the way it was changing. And it it was all very, very harrowing. So that all being said, I was, you know, still when I was home during the weeks of, you know, I'd I'd basically I'd be away for three days and I'd be home for four days. And during those four days, I'd be home. I was just working on these demos and these pitches, basically. And then pandemic hits, everything gets shut down. So I'm still kind of in this headspace. And after the initial, I want to say two weeks of, you know, utter gloom, I finally decided, you know what, I'm just gonna start, I'm gonna start writing. And um, I'm just, you know, I'm just gonna write this experience. And I didn't expect it to ever be the whole, a full length album of, you know, how big it is now. I really thought it was gonna be maybe, well, I was optimistically thinking this whole thing would be over in eight weeks. And I'd come out of this with like, you know, a, an eight track EP or something like that. And mm-hmm. it went on and on and on and and suddenly the record's 23 songs and 79 minutes and you know it barely fits on it fits on a cd by one minute that's the uh because 80 is the max but really at the beginning of this and this was really helpful i was talking to a friend of mine um she does a lot of like tarot card reading and spiritual healing and stuff like that which is just her specialty so we're just talking and you know she she has a very uh her name's michelle vasel and she's got this very sometimes like enlightened outlook at, you know, turning lemons or what's it? Lemons or life into lemons. Lemons into lemonade. (laughs) Yeah. Lemonade. Right. Why can't I think of that? (laughs) So, but she said this really incredible thing to me. We were just, we were on the phone and she said, you know, this is, this is actually such a unique opportunity for you. And this is actually a gift. Hmm. And it, and I hadn't thought about it in that way. And, and once, once I heard her say that, it was really, it really changed my mindset about how I could take advantage of this really ghastly situation. Right. Yeah. I mean, immediately when I saw that, uh, the isolated official trailer video on YouTube, I was just like, wow, this is. Oh, yeah. It's dark. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird because the music doesn't even feel like so like depressing or it's like 
completely unsettling, but just that perfect like match of imagery to. Yeah, well, yeah. I gotta I gotta credit the video editor Alex um, Alex Hernandez. He made that, and I mean, when I first saw that trailer, I I thought, oh my god, you know, this is really intense, because right. I didn't think you know that wasn't I wasn't I mean when I was writing a lot of these tracks, um, I was thinking about the current events. I mean, they were written about the current events as they were happening, but I did it over the course of six months, so really i mean since it's a trailer it's intense there isn't you know any of the subtlety of the record and the record really is there's a lot of beautiful subtlety to it but the trailer is all of you know <laughs> it's all the impact and yeah seeing it all back to back was uh it was intense it was very intense for sure well congrats on having it out in the world and i mean i just want to say like i've always so inspired by everything you put out cuz thank you i feel like you always i feel like you never like approach music the same way twice and yeah, I mean, like even like when your splice pack came out, and I checked out every single loop. I was oh, like, wow, yeah. there's some great ideas in here. And uh, I mean, I guess the one thing that that I especially took away from you is just like how you don't use MIDI and you just commit stuff to audio immediately. And for the most part, um, obviously, if I'm doing something, you know, where I have to, you know, mock up a, a string section or something orchestral, that's there's going to be a fair amount of MIDI with that. But um, when it comes to just, you know, my creative process of writing and all that, no, I mean, I, I want to have an instrument in my hand, whether that's a, a guitar or, you know, some like a lot of that splice pack was made on modular synthesizer. So it's just, you know, having a tactile response. And now I keep, I just buy instruments now when I, <laughs> I mean, it's funny, I, I had to do a thing where they wanted, um, like, uh, I guess, Chinese instruments. And, and I'm looking at like Urhu sample libraries and stuff like that. And they all sounded kind of junky. So, um, I went and I just found like an Urhu for sale or, or there's uh, actually here in LA, there was a, uh, like a, I forget the name it was like Eastern music supply or something like that. And so I, I got this Urhu for, it was like 120 bucks or something. And the libraries are like, you know, a hundred bucks too. So it's like, well, this is gonna be better. And even though I have no idea how to play this thing, you know, you kind of work it out, but even being bad at something, you're more expressive than if you, uh, as long as you can actually get a note out, but then if you're using a library or something like that. So, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, like if you need a big string section or a big brass section, that's not something you can really do on your own. But I did the same thing with a cello too, where I, I bought a cello a few years ago and like it always sounds better to me than uh, anything that comes from a library. So sometimes what I'll do, I'll just like, I'll record cello passes and then, you know, I'll, I'll layer a bigger section underneath it. But it's, uh, there's something, and I think a lot of it has to do with like how I mic things, I guess, because I, I, and I, I realized, I was thinking about this the other day and I was, I think it's because I'm a guitarist, I do this, but I don't think, oh, you know, I'm going to have, you know, a, a stereo pair of, you know, condensers or, you know, like eight feet above the cello or something like I mic it like I mic an acoustic guitar where basically, you know, my mic is almost right off the bridge. So it's picking up all of the string sound and, uh, of, of the actual bow. And it's just scratchy and it's bright. And also, if you take that and you, you pitch it down an octave, oh my God, like the guttural growl you get out of that with all the texture of having just the hairs on the bow. Oh, it, it sounds incredible. Put it through some like distortion or a fuzz pedal or something and it just sounds like a hell cello. A hello. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, I think I heard you talking about um, doing like the Berkeley mentorship or, or spending a week there and like how a lot of students... Because the access to 
you know, same like Spitfire libraries or whatever is just so much easier these days than, than ever, how a lot of music can sound the same or especially like the splice stuff too. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what I saw there, cause I, I wasn't when they hosted me last year, which is almost exactly a year ago today, it's just crazy to think about. They, they had me in the EPD, uh, electronic production and design, which is like uh, music production basically. So I wasn't in the, the film scoring wing. So I think probably in, on the film scoring side, you'll see more of the Spitfire libraries, but in my, in the area I was at, it was mostly splice. It was a very different vibe than when I was there, when I was a student there 15 years ago or something like that. And, um, I think also when I was there, electronic music wasn't a mainstream thing yet. Like, I mean, the most electronic you got was, you know, like the production for like Britney Spears is toxic, which is still, you know, that actually is an incredibly produced pop record. It's so forward thinking for, you know, for what it is. But we like my little group of friends and all everyone is like the major was called music synthesis at the time. And we were all into like IDM and Aphex Twin and Telephone Tel Aviv, Richard Devine, that kind of like really push the boundaries with sound design and programming kind of thing. And a big part of that is you make your own stuff. Like there was no way to, you know, use these samples really. I mean, you really had to create your own. You had to really get into sound design and the sound design was such a, such an integral part of, you know, the creative process and, and, and turn the sound. So it was such a fascinating time to be there just because we were all pushing each other in this really creative sound design um, and programming side. Whereas um, now, I mean, it's not to say the kids aren't pushing each other. They're pushing each other in different ways. Um, but it's the building blocks are already there. Now they don't have to think about how am I going to make a kick drum? And they don't even think, why would I make a kick drum? They, they just, right. they go, they go and they get it from splice and same thing with like, you know, bases and, you know, it, it, it's like, they're not, they're not stealing melodies off splice. You know, these are, you know, these are talented kids, but it's just a different generation of the tools at hand really, you know, they affect the kind of music you make. And right now also, I think what's really popular for that, that age bracket, I mean, cause you know, these kids are all around, at least the ones I was around, I wasn't with the, uh, the seniors. I think I was mostly with the, the sophomores, maybe some juniors. So they were all around 19, 20 years old. And I think, yeah, they introduced me to a genre called future bass, which I, I, I've, I don't really listen to very much electronic music. So I, I'm actually kind of in the dark, but it just sounded kind of, uh, it sounded a bit like more melodic dubstep, but it was still, you know, it was all about everyone wanted to have this build up into a drop. Right. And it was really interesting to just see with, with a few exceptions, there, there were a couple students who really blew me away, but by and large, most of the crowd was, you know, they were all trying to make the same genre. And I don't know if that's, I think, you know, that's partly inspired by the tools that, you know, like splice and, and synthesizers like serum and what have you, which, you know, again, incredible tools that I think like serum is, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate enough to be on the development side of serum. So I've, I've seen that, you know, really grow for a really, really long time. And it's one of the most incredible software synthesizers I have ever seen just the programmability of it to the fact that you can actually, you know, create your own waveforms in it using actual math equations is really 
for I mean, Steve's an absolute genius, Steve Duda. But it's interesting when suddenly those tools become so indicative of a certain genre. Like you couldn't think about you know, like Native Instruments Massive without thinking dubstep. And even though Massive was capable of far more many things than just dubstep, that became the dubstep synth. And later Serum did too, because really, you know, the, the dubstep sound designers realized how how incredible the the capabilities of Massive at first, and then later later Serum were. And in a way, then it kind of brands a synth as as like the sound of this genre, which is an interesting thing because then I think it's very possible not to look beyond just what's on the surface and you're missing out I think on a, a lot of the uniqueness and creativity of those things and whether it's you know a synth or creating your own kick drum or whatever I think it's just presets are you know they can be they can be very creative sure and they can be right. inspirational well but, I like what you said about the arhu because you 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 got one and then you can do things that just don't exist in articulation folders for east west instruments or whatever or yeah i mean it's kind of like the same with like when you hear eddie van halen in the 80s and then everyone starts to sound like van halen and do those right. kinds of riffs or then in the 2000s you hear max martin use guitar in a completely different way and then everyone replicates that and that's totally that's how you get into these bubbles where just things kind of stagnate but there's so much more you can do with the guitar i mean you could detune it and play oh, I mean, it's funny yeah. i there I have uh, 13 guitars in here. And, well, it's because they're mostly all in different tunings. Oh, wow. And they're all set up to be in different tunings, you know, with different gauge strings for drop tunings and what have you. And they're like multiple seven string guitars. And it's, but because like I, I really love alternate tunings because I get so inspired by, you know, okay, like mechanically my fingers work the same, but melodically this is a totally different ballgame. So yeah, I, I love detuning guitars and all sorts of open tunings and alternate tunings and also down tuning. And that's, you know, the metal kid inside of me. Right. Yeah. You just have to go as deep and low as possible. Do you have any, uh, 10 strings over there? <laughs> no, no, I, I max out at a seven. Um, nice. one of the sevens it's, uh, God, I think it's tuned down to drop F. So 11 semitones below a standard tuned guitar. So basically a bass. Almost. <laughs> Um, but it's different. It really, it, it, it sounds completely different than a bass, but then the sure. bass, the bass lives in drop C, I think, but that's also like, I, I, I use drop C a lot. Cause also my voice, um, where I like, I'm most naturally comfortable if I'm singing or something, it's usually between C and D. So, uh, so E is actually pushing it a little bit for me. F can be really hard. So usually if I'm writing something that's going to be based on uh, something I have to sing on, then usually it's you know written on a guitar that's either in drop c or drop d or some variation thereof gotcha yeah yeah well uh i'd be curious to kind of shift uh focus to um i mean i i feel like i've seen some of the trailers where like i've heard some of your sound design stuff and i wanted to kind of talk about like for anyone who's interested in getting into that world like what was that like an intentional choice? Did you happen to like, I know you were signed to Warner Chapel. Did they pitch like sound no, design? It, it, it's funny. It, it's completely unrelated to all of that. Um, mm -hmm. So when I moved out to LA, uh, I moved out here in 2012 and I had already, I, I had been doing some gigging and touring, doing like the DJ thing and the electronic music thing. And so, um, so I, I had a little bit 
uh, I had a little bit of a fan base, I guess, at this point. And I remember <laughs> I, I was in the bathroom line at Tony Maserati's Halloween party in Hollywood. And this was, must've been 2013. And uh, this guy standing right next to me just goes, are you Matt? Uh, yeah. And it's like, you know, it's awkward because I'm standing in a bathroom line. And, of course. and he says, I love your music. I work for a trailer company. You should do trailer music. Huh. Okay. And then I met, the, <laughs> I met them next week and that was it. And then, uh, so I, and then I worked with those guys for five, five years or so, but, wow. uh, yeah, but it was just being in a bathroom line at a party in Hollywood. <laughs> that's how I got into trailer music. Yeah. It's so funny. Cause like, that's, I mean, there's a lot of aspiring composers I know who like ask about like where to move, like, do I need to move to LA or whatever? And it's just like, like when you hear stories like that, it's just like completely makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, now that's not happening anytime soon. So, right. I mean, it, it's funny. I, I've had, I've had conversations with other composers who, you know, we all, you know, we always thought we have to be in LA and now with the advent of a pandemic and and everyone shifting to re completely remote work. And I don't think that's going to necessarily go back even when the pandemic is over. I mean, I think a lot of people are going to stay remote because a lot of times it's more efficient. So I think the real the realization that you don't have to live in LA is definitely, um, it's made itself very aware. And I know a few people who are leaving LA or have left LA because they don't have to be here now. Hmm, I see. Yeah. Have you ever thought about like like do you enjoy LA overall? I love LA. I do. Um I frankly don't want to live anywhere else in the world. Yeah, it's so funny because I think also uh having grown up in New York City, I feel like yeah, when I moved to or my move to LA is just like mostly meeting New York City people over there and then <laughs> That's um, funny. When I go back to New York, it's just like oh yeah, it's like I feel like I meet all the people who move from LA and Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, it's yeah, definitely I think some of my Almost all of my closest friends here are all East Coasters, hmm. with the exception of one, and he's from San Francisco. But you know, <laughs> that's an outlier. But everyone else, yeah, it's it's New York and Boston actually, right? Which is really funny. But yeah, I guess everyone kind of wants to escape home. <laughs> well, I think there there is definitely a there's a distinction between uh, someone from the East Coast and someone from the West Coast. It's just a very different, uh, it's a different attitude, I think. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the East Coast, or I don't know what it is about, like, it seems like a lot of my friends from New York tend to do well in LA. It's yeah. Something about like drive or I don't well, even. Because there's no bullshit. Hmm. That, that I think is the most important thing that comes from particularly the New York kind of attitude. It's just life's too short. Just get to the point. Yes or no. And there's very little of the California, LA, uh, yeah, cool, man. You know, we'll, we'll think about it. We'll get back to you on that. It's a really interesting idea. And New York, I just think like Joe Pesci, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like that because then you know exactly where you stand with somebody or a situation immediately. There's no, there's no second guessing and there's no waste of time or anything. And the California thing is definitely... I've embraced some of the more laid back attitude here, but like, I'm not as anxious as I was in New York about, you know, being late or anything like that. I'm definitely more relaxed in some ways, but when it comes to just basic communication, I mean, it's like, you can take the boy out of New York, but you can't take the New York out of the boy. Yeah. Especially the metal heads in New York. We just tend to be the same. <laughs>
Were you a metalhead in New York? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was me in high school. <laughs> That's and awesome. Then, yeah. Then I remember what was it, recording the first album and just like being enamored by Pro Tools and thinking, like, yep. wow, it's so fun to just like come up with ideas in the studio and just, uh, yeah. Then I kind of just wanted to go from that to like pop songwriting and then sure. uh, stayed abroad in Berlin, gone to modular synthesis. <laughs> right on. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's not too dissimilar of an experience. Right on. Yeah, no, it's really funny. I feel like we have a lot in common, actually. It's like, yeah. you're about 10 years older than me, but it seems like you're, you're How old are you? crushing it. I'm 24. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 34. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I think I've just got a couple questions left before we go into the last segment. Um, cool. But I know you mentioned that you were pitching for some TV shows earlier um, in the year. Like, of curiosity, like, what would be like the next dream type of gig, or like, where do you see yourself in the next couple of years, uh, assuming a no pandemic world? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I always thought of a plan as a list of shit that doesn't happen, but um, where I, I'm, I'm really aiming a hundred percent into film and TV. Ah, it's fully like composing then. Completely, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'll still do you know my artist side and everything like that, but um. But I don't really want to tour like I used to. I mean, I, 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 was, I was touring as a DJ for 10 years. And uh, it became less exciting as I got older. And also just your priorities and your life, they change. And I found myself, you know, I, I want to be more grounded. And I, I want to settle down, which is, isn't something I wanted to say when I was 26 years old. So consequently... Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, so much of my work has always been, I mean, I, I've worked in and out of film as long as I've been out here, and I just enjoy it, I really do, and um, and I'd love to get to the point where that could actually just be steady, because right. that would just, I think, frankly, make my life a lot easier, <laughs> and I'm inspired by it, you know, that's that's the nice thing, so that's, that's the goal. Yeah, that's funny, because I feel like I... Like when I think of the name Matt Lang, I think sound designer first, uh, mostly just because I feel like every time I open a plugin, you have way too many mm. presets in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's funny. I think yeah, that your artist project, like just like, everything you do musically, is so uh, appropriate for film and. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of look at you know like the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross situation as a really um, inspiring model. Yeah, and I also think of like even like Junkie XL getting his start. <laughs> yeah, Tom too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's not uncommon. It's, uh, you know, it's definitely a proven concept. Right. Do you feel so. like it's a little challenging, like, uh, trying to like shift the focus more, more and more to that? Um, I guess a little later compared to like, you know, the people who graduate from Berkeley in film scoring and who've said that they're um, a TV composer. Yes and no. I think the hardest thing is to break people's perception of you. Hmm. That's, that's the hardest thing of anything is changing um, cause if they think, you know, they have this, okay, you're the DJ, then you can't actually write real music. You just play records or something like that. You know, like how, how would we ever hire you to, to do this film? That's the hardest. It really is breaking the perception. And I think I always had it in my mind too, that I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through like the traditional model where I perceived it as basically you, you'd leave Berkeley, you'd move to LA, you'd work at someone's assistant for, you know, eight years and then you get hired to be a cheaper version of them. Mm. And I wanted to just get known already and then get hired to be me. And 
that kind of happened. Uh, I mean, like within within my first year of being out here, I, I I got hired to do the score for this film on Fox. About bizarrely, it was. Uh, I mean, this is totally why I got hired. But it was a um, a movie about like a a fledgling DJ. He's a DJ who uh, he takes um, he basically intercepts extraterrestrial sounds from uh, let's just say the great beyond and turns that into music and the director and the writer happened to be a fan of my music so he hired me because he was a fan and that was i mean it was my first experience doing a film entirely by myself it was, it was a big learning experience but um but it was definitely that happened because i already existed as opposed to uh you know doing it the more traditional model so that's i don't know i'm i'm really bad with rules in general i don't like doing things the traditional way i always kind of want to maybe it's i mean it's part of being like a skateboarder since i was 12 years old and you know playing in metal and punk rock bands and everything but you know it's always like you know fuck it do it myself you know and i'm gonna do it better and i'm gonna be me and you know it's like right <laughs> you know, it, it's such like it's such a punk attitude and i kind of love it because it's like you know you could wait for the light to turn green but nope, I'm just going to jaywalk anyway because I can. Yeah, and I love your approach to, I mean, I think you said that you uh, like completely changed up like your business team a couple of years ago, mm. like got rid of mm. your manager, your agent, maybe not your man. I, I, yeah, 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 no, no, I cleaned house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was, it was necessary. It was just, um, so I, I will forever be indebted to the manager I had before because I worked with him for five years it's because of him I was able to get a publishing deal with uh, with Warner that paid for me to be able to move out to L.A. And that changed my life. So um, I will forever be indebted to Neil for, you know, all the help. And then like any relationship, um, you know, people change. And, and like for me, I I was evolving into what I wanted to do. And I... I mean, I was already kind of getting tired of the touring thing and the electronic music world and all that because it seemed more about the party than it seemed about music and frankly i don't care about the party at all um i just want to play and create that's my favorite thing in the world and um so i started it's when i started doing more of like the avant-garde or i guess like alternative industrial rock kind of records and and it's just this is where i wanted to be as an artist i wanted to be more cinematic and i wanted to you know write not club records and consequently i needed to make a big change in my team and so it was yeah booking agent was gone um parted ways with management uh my lawyer too and uh just kind of flew solo for i want to say a year and in that time i got some pretty good like licenses with uh with the sound design thing in the trailer world and it was just kind of a uh, I'm thinking Greenlight because I just read Matthew McConaughey's uh, new book, Greenlights, which is terrific. And uh, he has this great way of, you know, looking at life as, you know, it's all green lights that tell you say go and something that's a red light eventually becomes a green light and whatever. So using that metaphor, so so I get a royalty check from for a bunch of sound design licenses and it's more than I made that entire past year in touring. And it was just wow. one, it was one of those moments of, and yeah, I didn't tour a ton that year, but still it was just, you know, something to recognize of wow this is this is something and yeah. 
or that this is a sign, you know? <laughs> so, so of course, cause I'm me, the first thing I do, I go and I buy a piano and then, <laughs> and then I realize, oh no, I'm going to need new microphones and preamps because the piano can't live. The piano's in a different room of my house. So now I need a lunchbox. So then I spend as much on, on microphones and, uh, and like really nice pre's and, all this extra recording stuff to record the piano. And then half that check was gone in you know, the blink of an eye. But my God, was it worth it? Because again, like it, the piano became such a source of inspiration and some of my favorite things I've ever written in the past few years, but really my entire life, it's because I have this, this Yamaha now, which really, you know, makes a, a huge difference. And again, like it's, it goes back to the sample library thing. Like, yes, I have nice piano sample libraries. It's not the same. Like, sitting and like feeling the resonance of a piano and you know having that tactile like the weights and the key it's such a it's such a thing you know it really you're I, I really do believe that your own physical interaction with whatever instrument you're playing completely influences what you play and if you're playing everything out of say a midi controller which i mean a midi controller is about as, as vanilla as it could be i mean some of them are weighted sure but it's a midi controller um mm -hmm. When you have like a a unique physical relationship with your instrument, I mean that's it, it's it's like chemistry, you know. It's beautiful, for sure. And yeah, it's a seamless uh, transition to the final segment for the top or for the uh, for the podcast. <laughs> Great. Uh, it's a segment called Tech Talk, where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. Okay. So the first one is uh, Daw. Daw. I'm Pro Tools all the way. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been. Well, I've been. I've, I've dabbled over the years um, and then I was in Logic for quite a while but that was mainly because I couldn't afford Pro Tools HD yet because at the time Pro Tools HD cost about $15,000 and I was in my 20s or early 20s and then um, then I worked on a record got a check for like five grand and just went and I bought a Pro Tools HD system when they had HD native and that or actually, no, that's not, that is true. But no, before that, when they introduced Pro Tools 9, I think, that's when they finally disconnected it from Avid Hardware. Right. So yeah. I was able box to... Eras. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So so that was another big thing. So I, was, I went and I, I had like an Apogee Duet, which, you know, they were such good little interfaces for, you know, like a small setup. So I had an Apogee Duet running Pro Tools 9. Mm -hmm. And that... That changed me over entirely to Pro Tools, and then a year later, then I got Pro Tools HD, and now I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm so Pro Tools is my my thing. I can't, <laughs> I really don't like anything else to be honest. Cool. Next one we have here is uh, Eventide and Newfangled Audio. Oh man, so I mean, I I love Eventide and, and Newfangled is you know uh, an extension basically or. Dan from Eventide, he uh, he started his own thing called Newfangled Audio. So they're all, you know, it's all in the family. But I, I, I'm always so inspired by the Eventide effects, always. Um, again, actually, my first introduction, well, when I was in high school, was listening to Steve Vai records. And they, uh, I remember he talked about like his H3000 or something, one of those. So I always had it in my mind, like, Eventide is this magical creature of effects like you know this is this is as good as it gets and fast forward a few years later i'm at berkeley and i uh i was in this class called uh sampling with uh, a teacher who's incredible his name's michael brigida and he he's actually really responsible for me like getting into 
sound design. But um, we had this day where we took this Moog theremin and put it through uh, an Eventide DSP 4000. And there was an algorithm on the DSP 4000 called Genesis Worlds, which was basically, um, it's parallel pitch shifters. One goes up a fifth, one goes down a fourth with feedback, and it goes into like a giant modulated like hall reverb like that that isn't too dissimilar from black hole and the sound of just you know the theremin which you know a theremin is naturally pitchy because you know of how it operates so like the slight chorusing that then gets exploded into this giant orchestral swell it was like the sound of like the heavens opening up i mean it was something i had never i, I had never heard before and it was just like this is the best thing ever and a number of years later, I'm perusing Craigslist for an eventide, and I find in a dentist, uh, a guy who was a dentist in Hartford, Connecticut, had one for sale. And I get there, and uh, it was Steve Vise before him. Whoa. So like full, full circle. So uh, so I have one of Steve Vives' old eventides. And, uh, and since then, I mean, I use all the plugins. I have, I think, every every eventide pedal they make um but i mean it's i i definitely i have a relationship you know with eventide as a company now too and they they just make incredibly inspiring tools and um and same thing with dan and newfangled i mean yeah when i when i first got the early ver working version of uh elevate which was the first thing he brought out the limiter i'm fortunate that you know he's always sent me he sent me his ideas really early on so it's really a privilege to be able to watch them grow from basically the seed of an idea into these incredible tools and elevate went from basically a, a pretty simple, like a, it, it was a high quality limiter, but it was a single band limiter. And then suddenly three months later, he comes back and it's this 26 bands, you know, multi-band <laughs> beast of like, it, it's the best limiter I've ever used in my life. And it's literally on everything I do. Um, and then same thing with generate, just watching that grow from basically the seed of an idea, which is basically like pendulate, I guess is pretty akin to what the original seed is. But then, you know, watching it turn into this, I mean, they're one of the records on, uh, on isolated hocus potus is almost entirely made out of generate. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's such an incredible, incredible synthesizer. It's probably one of my favorites. And, uh, yeah, when he sent it to me, I mean, I just, uh, left my make noise uh, system with a friend and I kind of mm. missed it. And then I was like, man, there's no good uh, West Coast synth plugin. And I know there's the Bukla one from our church. Yeah, not the then, same. Then I got the newfangled thing. I was like, okay, I think I'm sold. I don't think yeah. I need to buy any more modules for at least a couple months. <laughs> yeah, I see. I'm, I did the thing of where I filled up my case entirely. and Ooh, So dangerous. <laughs> well, it, it's great because now I can't buy anything. Oh, you're the type of person who doesn't just swap out one thing and then end up with a whole. For a while, I ended up with a graveyard of all these modules that you know no longer had a space. Right. And and I finally went and uh, I sold them all on Reverb around I don't know, I think around the time of like or actually it was over it was before the pandemic started actually, but um so I kind of cleaned house and then I, I think I have like eight or so modules just kind of floating around different people's houses in L.A. and I don't even know where they are anymore, but. <laughs> But I mean, it's because you know it is very much like a community kind of thing. Like people are here, you know, why don't you try this and borrow this, and I'll borrow that, and whatever. Um, right. So, but I mean, yeah, my modular is at a point now where, um, 
I don't use it nearly as often now as I used to, but that's just because I'm in a different phase right now. And inevitably, I'll come back and get really nerdy about it. But um, I mean, there hasn't been anything in modular format that's gotten me super excited with the exception of um, the noise engineering. Uh, I think it's called Desmodus Versa, like the, the bat verb. Um, because that thing sounds phenomenal. But other than that, I think I'm, I like my modular rig as it is right now. And I don't think I'm going to, well, modulate it too much. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it was such a pleasure talking with you, Matt. And do you have anything uh, coming up that you want to tell the people about? Well, um, the isolated album came out two weeks ago and that is definitely the, uh, <laughs> definitely the thing. So uh, go take a listen. It's everywhere. And we also have actual CDs available too. And that's on uh, the web, the isolated website, which is isolatedmusic.com. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really a project of passion. And I hope people enjoy it. Awesome. Well, such a pleasure talking with you, Matt. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.